Good afternoon to all of you and welcome to today's LNG panel. So I guess we'll start off by quickly introducing the panelists. First off we have uh, Jon Skule of Avilko, Øystein Kalleklev of uh, Flex, uh, Alistair Maxwell of Gaslog, Stuart Buchanan of Golar and Richard Tyrell from Hög. So just as a, as a very quick backdrop to what's going on in the market, I think it's fair to say that it's been consensus for some years now that the market is going to be short 20 to 30 vessels uh, by the end of this decade. And I guess we've all been disappointed on multiple occasions uh, when the market hasn't improved, but now things are finally happening. So now we're hearing uh, rates well in excess of $100,000 a day, and it's certainly very exciting times ahead, uh, given that we're only in September. Um, so first I want to start with you, Jon, and maybe you can just take us quickly through uh, the different dynamics that has caused the rates to rally and, and why the market suddenly got so, uh, so good. Well, it's, uh, it's not that difficult. It's, uh, it's supply-demand. Um, uh, but of course, I think for LNG, it's more supply, uh, oh, sorry, more, more demand than, than, uh, than anything else. We, we're, in 2018, we have the biggest uh, delivery uh, of, of, uh, from the yards ever in history, and, uh, and still we're at $100,000 a day. Uh, the LNG volumes are, of course, uh, growing, like we know and we expected. <clears throat> And, and uh, you know, this year uh, we've had a, a good stretch uh, with, a, with a lot of new LNG plants up and, up and running. Next year is going to be uh, much higher, much more LNG volumes on the, on the water, uh, fewer ships. Uh, and with uh, the, the amount of LNG coming out of the U.S. and demand, uh, as we all know, based in uh, basically or predominantly from, from Asia, it's good ton miles. So um, I don't think it's necessarily any more difficult than that. But it could seem like some of it, like the market is getting a bit greedy. We're hearing uh, rumors of owners refusing $100,000 a day. Uh, what kind of factors are, are you looking for that is going to kick in and, and kind of push rates even higher in the short-term picture? Well, if $100,000 a day is greed, uh, you know, <laughs> we, we were fixing at $5,000 a day a year ago or a year and a half ago. I don't think $100,000 a day is, uh, is greedy at all. Uh, we're... we're uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, we're as you said, we're in September. Markets a hundred thousand dollars a day. If it doesn't make sense to pay that rate, well, then the charters won't. Uh, they're still making money, uh, and we intend to uh, only take our fair share of that going forward. And uh, if you look at the forward curve on on LNG going into the winter, there's uh, certainly room for improvement. Isai, do you have any comments on? Oh, I totally agree with John, and I'm very happy that other ship owners are thinking the same way as we are. You know, $100,000 a day is not that attractive these days. You know, LNG prices are high in Asia, uh, and of course, people are making money moving the LNG to those markets, paying a higher price. And it's time that the ship owners are taking a part of the the value here because people haven't been made money for a couple of years now. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we will bid for this. We have positioned ourselves for this. We have four vessels on the water and we have four under delivery. We have, uh, you know, uh, deliberately not taken on long-term charters because we don't find the economics of doing that very appealing. So rather than doing that, we are taking a, a bet on the market and, and we have a very good track record in, in the system of doing this kind of bet on the market. And while 
communication to, to the shareholders is that, you know, 2018 is the transition year. You have had poor market, 14, 15, 16, 17, because uh, excess optimism after Fukushima and then delays of uh, Australian trains. And, and now the, the market is tightening and it's actually a very short recovery cycle for a shipping segment. Uh, you know, you have a, a recovery cycle here without having to go through a scrapping cycle. Uh, and the reason for that, this is, of course, that you have long fundamental growth. You know, the market is growing 10% every year. The market uh, is going to double from 2010 to 2020 in terms of liquefaction capacity. And then we are very bullish about the market. We said people don't buy the stock because of 2018 earnings because it's going to be volatile and, and utilization will be affected by this volatility. But, you know, we're very bullish now going into 2019. And we think rates, uh, you know, this is the, the early phase of the recovery cycle for LNG. Uh, and we positioned ourselves for that. Thank you. And, and last year we saw um, the Chinese demand had a large impact going into the winter um, and at times 50% of their volumes were, were spot volumes. Alistair or Stuart, do you have any comments on, on what you think will happen um, with the Chinese increased demand going into the winter? I think there's no doubt that Chinese demand is uh, continuing to grow. If you look at uh, year to date, uh, it's approximately 40% up. Uh, over 2017, and obviously 2017 was a much higher base than, than previous years. And the demand growth in China has been, to a very large extent, policy-driven and is now secular and structural. You know, once you convert a, a boiler in, in a home or, a res or an industrial facility uh, from burning coal or burning fuel oil to burning gas, then you don't go back to those, uh, to those other fuels. Um, and I was talking to someone in, in uh, Beijing the other day who was saying that the impact on air quality in the major cities, particularly up in the northeast of China and particularly up in the winter, has been really, really noticeable. So the only signs that we see in China are that the policy of um, uh, addressing both energy demand growth and also uh, the need for greater air quality um, by burning more gas, that's going to continue. But I think the other major message that, that we always reiterate to people is, yes, China has been important to demand growth over the course of the last... 18 months or so, and it will continue to be important as we look forwards. The reality is that demand growth has been much more broad-based than just China. And uh, Southeast Asia, even Europe, um, if you look at Wood Mackenzie numbers uh, going out to 2025, Europe is about 30% of the demand growth. Uh, Southeast Asia is about another 30%. China is 20%. And obviously, Southeast Asia and Europe encompass multiple countries. But I think the real, the real message here is this is not only about China, uh, demand growth is strong in other parts of the world as well. Yeah, just, just to add to that, uh, I mean, the latest figures that I, I saw this morning is that year to August, Chinese demand is up around 51%, uh, which, is, which is even better. And some of that is because of uh, restocking after a, a very hot summer that uh, drew reserves right down. Some of it is to you know, be a little bit more prepared than they were this time last year for the winter season, so they are stocking up ahead of that. Uh, they recognise that they'll probably run up against the same problems this year in terms of lack of uh, terminal capacity. So they've indicated that some of those northern cities that they tried to switch from coal to gas last winter will stay on coal this winter. Um, but no, Chinese demand is absolutely uh, here to stay. And I think we've seen that sentiment in terms of their reaction to US tariffs. Uh, reducing the tariffs on US LNG from 25% to 10% tells you everything you need to know about their attitude towards keeping their their air clean in China and, and their dependence on US LNG. 
But absolutely, and you know, all all the headlines have been about China becoming the, the the second biggest market for LNG, and people forget that South Korea last year, which up until then was the second largest market, itself grew by 10% or 11%. Taiwan, another big market, grew by a similar percentage. India, uh, developing import capacity that in four to five years' time will be around 56 million tonnes per annum. That's more than total Chinese demand annualised to date will be this year. So um, you know, the focus needs to be on those other markets as well. Thank you. Uh, you had a head start on my, on my next question there, which is uh, clearly the, the trade tensions between the US uh, and China. And I think just f uh, for us sitting in the market every day, it's easy to do the calculations and, and, and look at what the market is. But for someone on the outside, it might be a bit more difficult. So I don't know if any of you have any um, view on how the tariffs could potentially impact LNG short term, but also long term with potential you know, long term FIDs uh, in the US. Of course, short term is not going to affect a lot. People are going to swap around cargo. So if you have your Australian volumes going to Japan, you divert it to China. If you have US volumes going to China, you know you divert that rather to Japan. But of course, the big problem is the is the FIDs. So you know people will be a bit reluctant to do FIDs when you have this uncertainty and nothing's going to happen with the trade talks before the midterms. So, uh, you know, the, what will happen here is, you know, the Chinese will be running to Qatar, which they just did recently, signing up 3.4 million, million tons there for the next 22 years. They're going to run to Mozambique. They already have good connection in, uh, in that part of the world. And they're going to run to the Russians. So the American volumes have to find a, a more diverse set of, uh, of customers. Of course, the obvious candidates for the U.S. volumes would be off text to the Chinese. But you know, there are, as as as, uh, as the other guys have mentioned, you know, there are other parts where you have a huge growth in, in LNG. So, so it's more that you know that you're stalling some of the FID windows. That's the that's the main challenge. And I think the only thing I'd add to that is I'm, I'm I'm I don't know how long this is going to take to play out. I agree that we're not going to get uh, much signs of resolution ahead of the midterm elections. Um, but I am absolutely convinced that energy is going to be part of the solution to the, the trade relationship between China and, and the US, and that encompasses uh, crude products, uh, um, chemical feedstocks, as well as LNG. I'm sure it's going to be part of the answer. Thank you. And uh, you know, if we try to stay on, on China a little bit, which is obviously where the, the biggest growth has been, uh, Stuart, you perhaps mentioned a bit on the, earlier in terms of the biggest bottlenecks, if you look apart from, are, are there any bottlenecks for, for China? In China, I think it's mainly the import terminal capacity, uh, and you know, there's a lot of people have said for a long time, well, why don't you know, why don't they take on more FSIUs? It's a sitting duck for that market. Uh, but I think a lot of the FS, uh, a lot of the import capacity there is controlled by the three majors, uh, and they have long-term uh, offtake agreements with uh, you know, that were agreed back in 2011, 12, 13 at sort of uh, slightly more on a, slightly more onerous terms than they could agree today. Uh, and there's a, some fear possibly amongst them that if they open up uh, the import terminals to, to FSIU players and, and so forth, that uh, they could be undermined. You know, that you know, cheap infrastructure together with uh, much more attractive LNG supply deals could um, uh, undercut them substantially. So there hasn't been a lot of progress on, on the FSIU market within China. Uh, that's certainly the feedback that we've sort of been getting. Uh, so I think the import infrastructure will continue to be dominated by the three main players.
Well, on, on the subject of FSIUs in China, I can say that uh, Hergel NG uh, has got an FSIU in China. Uh, it's the only one there uh, at the moment. Uh, it um, uh, is an asset which I think does give its customer, who's CNOC uh, in, in our case, you know, great flexibility because uh, they can use it as an FSIU in the winter uh, when they have regas demand and they can use it to transport LNG to their uh, other regas facilities uh, when, it's, uh, when it's not needed up north. Um, so it's a, it's a very flexible uh, product for the Chinese. Uh, there are um, certain sort of political aspects to it, um, which uh, Stuart alluded to there, uh, that create something of a barrier to entry. Uh, there's also, uh, and this is a, you know, very much a stereotype, but they, they, they like to build things in China. And uh, you know, longer term, they view uh, building onshore uh, capacity as being uh, maybe more their thing. Um, but that's not to say they don't appreciate uh, FSIUs, and uh, we'd certainly expect to see more FSIUs uh, in, in the not-too-distant future in China, and uh, it's very much an area of focus. I think, um, you know, if you look at, we can't get around the fact that Japan is, is a big player in this market, and um, there has been talks, or many people believe that uh, Japan has overcommitted on volumes, um, perhaps as much as 10, 15 million tons. How do you assess the, the risk on pricing and, and the potential impact on the LNG shipping market if they were to resell these cargoes uh, in the market? I, I, I'm not quite sure um, I follow your reasoning. Uh, Japan increased their imports over the summer, so... Uh, I'm meaning long <laughs> term. They, they have committed to too, many, too much volumes uh, going forward. It could be. Uh, at the same time, uh, we hear, uh, was it Mitsui, uh, deciding to... Um, to stop any development of coal uh, plants uh, going forward. So, so I think uh, you know, although there's been a lot of uh, focus in in Japan uh, on the nuclear, uh, you know, on restarting their nuclear facilities uh, and and thereby reducing uh, LNG imports, I think uh, we're seeing uh, now that as time has gone by, they've managed uh, you know without their nukes uh, and they they're back. I think uh, well, at least I haven't heard uh, the Japanese talking about reducing further. Uh, so. But of course, as you say, they are today the biggest importer. I think John will, will probably surpass that in the next few years. But uh, but uh, they're they're a big player, and and, and obviously it'll have a uh, have an impact on, on our trade going forward. Yeah. Sorry, sorry yeah. uh, I was just going to say it's not necessarily a bad thing because uh, at the end of the day, it means that it's a more dynamic market for the supply of LNG, and um, uh, the Japanese are out there looking to open up new markets, just as the uh, U.S. Gulf Coast producers are looking to open up new markets just as Qatar is looking to place its 50 million tons per annum of incremental capacity uh, over, over the next few years. And, uh, you know, what does that mean? Well, uh, that's an awful lot of uh, LNG coming to market. It means that, uh, you know, they're not just going to focus on the big markets because there simply aren't enough of them. And uh, they are going to be focusing on the smaller markets, say one million tons per annum type markets, uh, which, uh, yeah, of course, uh, is something which from an um, infrastructure point of view, whether it be shipping or whether it be uh, on the terminal side, is uh, what has to be a positive. And on the terminal side, where do you see the most, uh, which areas do you have the most biggest expectations to going forward? Uh, there's um, a few areas and they're all, they're, they're all slightly different. Uh, I mean, ultimately, uh, you only need to look at the uh, population map of the world uh, to see that 50% uh, of the world's population lives within that uh, sphere sort of around um, uh, China and, and India. And of course, that's where you have the big uh, big cities um, and uh, FSIUs uh, send out a lot of gas and they need a lot of gas customers 
so that's a big opportunity. Um, you then see the more uh, bespoke uh, type uh, projects uh, like uh, are in the news in Australia at the moment. Um, again, Australia is a big, big country, um, not so many people, but all the gas is on the wrong side. So uh, having an FSIU in the southeast uh, does make sense because to build a pipeline from uh, the northwest shelf down to the southeast corner is like building a pipeline from the Pacific Ocean offshore Boston down to Miami. Uh, and that's why you know, they can make sense in places where you may not expect them to. Um, other than that, I do think there's a big opportunity for smaller scale um, projects, and uh, maybe not sort of on a standalone basis, but as a way to get some of the bigger projects across the line. Uh, some of the bigger projects, they need more than just a power uptaker. They need uh, maybe some brake bulking, they need maybe some um, supply of gas to local industry. And then, I think in the future, they're going to need bunkering in order to comply with IMO 2020. Thank you. And if we look at, um, you know, on the LNG side, we often talk uh, with it on uh, relation to oil prices, which has clearly also been on the rise. And we normally have viewed rising oil prices as good for the LNG shipping market due to the link to, um, to uh, Asian pricing. Uh, but is there a point where, you know, the, the rising oil prices now being, you know, above 80, is there a point where it becomes demand destructive relative to other energy sources? Uh, my personal view is I, I worry much more about high uh, oil prices feeding into high gas prices and that having some impact on, on demand. I think there are, there are some benefits, particularly when it opens the uh, between Europe and, and, the, and uh, Northeast Asia. Clearly, you've got a, a situation at the moment where gas prices in Europe are, uh, have also had a very strong run as a result of the need uh, to A, supply uh, power demand for air conditioning in a very hot summer and B, to refill storage from last winter. Um, and so the ARB isn't, isn't all that strong at the moment, but I do worry quite a lot about uh, the impact of high prices on uh, the ability to secure new demand for the future. I, I suppose the only tangential benefit is um, high oil prices uh, feeding through into high gas prices do, does mean uh, that the economics the new projects uh, work better and, and the majors and other developers of new LNG projects have uh, you know, incremental capital uh, that they can put to work. So I suppose there's a marginal benefit, but I worry more about the long-term impact on demand. Just, just to add to that, I think that uh, long-term the US will probably set the level for LNG prices at somewhere between $7 and $8 per mm BTU, uh, just simply because that's what they can, they can deliver at X ship at. Um, with Wave 2 coming along, it looks like the US will continue to dominate uh, new LNG. Um, LNG prices, even though they have risen with oil, have also decoupled from oil. Um, and, and I think, as you mentioned earlier, Alistair, the, the, the environmental card is more important than it ever has been, and price isn't the only thing. So I think the desire to clean up the, the environment um, is, is far more important than it ever has been. So I don't think necessarily these high LNG prices will be around forever if, if wave two in the US happens, as people are saying it will. Um, and if the LNG price comes down a bit, well, that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. There's very price-sensitive markets like India um, that, that could step in and, and um, you know, stop LNG prices going too low. But somewhere between 7 and $8 for MMBTU is my sort of forecast of where long-term LNG prices should be, which is very, very competitive from an economic point of view and obviously great from the environmental point of view. 
And it's very real. I mean, that's if we were to pick up the phone to certain individuals now who have got projects in the US Gulf Coast and express a willingness to sign up a long-term contract, we'd get that price. Um, obviously, you seem quite uh, positive on the demand side of the equation. I think, you know, speaking to some investors, some people are concerned and drawing the analogy to what happened on the LPG side, where you, you know, when the U.S. started exporting, you had a collapse of the product differentials, and you basically had no arbitrage to trade on for a, for a prolonged time, and you had a lot of cargo cancellations. Is is that something investors should be concerned of on the on the LNG side? Right now, the biggest problem is the European gas prices are so high, as mm -hmm. Alistair mentioned. So, you know, in a normal market with $12 per million BTU in Asia, you, do, you will see a lot of uh, reloads from Europe to Far East. So, uh, you know, uh, once that window opens again, and, and it's opening and, and closing, you know, depending on the day here, uh, but once that opens again, you know, you will see more uh, re-export out of Europe. It's going to drag ton mileage, and, uh, and I think that will be one of the places here for the winter, uh, which is going to be positive for LNG shipping. Uh, in terms of U.S. volumes, if you look at the forward curve for uh, natural gas on uh, NYMEX, uh, the curve is totally flat, so it's like 290 for Henry Hub, and it's flat the next five years, so you can kind of lock in cheap gas prices for a very long period of time. And then if you have this 290 and you're adding on 250 $3 for liquefaction, you have this $6, give or take, FOB US. Uh, so, so uh, you know, and, and if you can get gas at $6 FOB, you know, there's going to be buyers, you know. This is, uh, you know, if you take $80, and you take the theoretical burn value of, of, of gas, you get to a gas price of uh, $13-$14. So it's uh, you know, very attractive to buy gas rather than oil and, and use this as a fuel. And, and then you don't have all these problems with the SOX and the NOX and the particle matters. So, so I don't think the analogy of LPG is, is the similar to, to LNG, to be honest. I also think it's actually quite interesting when you look at uh, the US, which is, uh, has uh, recently, well, over the last two years, started exporting LNG to the, today, I guess, the tune of about 25 million tons per annum, hasn't made a dent in Henry Hub. Uh, yeah, there's another 50, 50 odd million tons export uh, capacity coming, uh, coming on stream. Uh, and, and as you say, the forward curve is flat, just shows how much gas there is uh, in the US. Yeah, and that's despite historically low storage capacity of gas in the US. Despite very low inventory of gas, gas prices are, doesn't move. Because it's endless of gas capacity. And it's not only that Henry Hub is the only price for gas. So places where, you know, Permian, where you have a lot of associated gas, gas is basically for free. So then if you have gas for free and you add some liquefaction, you know, it's going to be very competitive. Thank you. I think we may have to move over to the supply side a bit. I see time is, is, uh, is running quickly here. Um, going into the year, um, we were in, in Korea, met with all the Korean yards who all told us that we, we were going to see between 35 and 50 uh, LNGC orders this year. Uh, we didn't believe them at the time, but I think uh, uh, now we've seen, you know, I think at least 35. Um, are you surprised of, of the numbers, Alistair? Um, yes, I think we are partly surprised by uh, the number of orders. They all came in a bit of a rush at the, um, uh, in the start of the year. Um, but, I, but I think it didn't surprise us in the sense that we think all these ships and more will be needed. Um, so we, we definitely don't think that the market is, is over-ordered or will be overbuilt um, as we look forward to 
the, the macro fundamentals for demand and supply of LNG uh, over the next three, four, five years. So we're, we're, I think we're not, we're not concerned about that. I think that we've been a little bit surprised by the number of speculative orders and we've been a little bit surprised by some of the, some of the new entrants. And uh, the other, about two weeks ago or three weeks ago, we had the first private equity new entrant into the business. Um, the experience of private equity in, in uh, shipping in general, with LNG shipping in particular, has been absolutely horrible uh, so far. Um, so I wish these guys all the, all the luck. Um, I, I do think it's a, it's, it's a very different thing um, ordering a ship from being able to operate it and manage it uh, and charter it, uh, especially with strong credit-worthy charterers. Um, I think it is going to be interesting to see uh, whether all the people who've ordered speculative ships, uh, whether they can find homes for them and, and with whom. What about the, the near term? Do you think we're going to see, as I mentioned, they expected 35 to 50? Uh, some of them were quite certain of 50. Do you think we're going to see a, a lot of speculative new buildings coming in this year? And, and if any, who will order them? It depends on the market. You know, if the market is strong and people, there's a lot of stupid money around, people's going to order vessels. I think the other, the other dynamic which has definitely been playing a part here is yard prices and options. And you know we came out of a we're coming out of a period now where yard prices have been at cyclical lows uh, over the last year year and a half. A number of people, including Gaslog, um, ordered ships in uh, uh, in 2017 uh, and early 2018 and had priced options along with those ships. And, and we've exercised a couple of those options um, in terms of the two open ships that we have today. One of which is delivering in 2019 and 2020. I think most of that phenomenon has worked through the system now uh, and yard prices are certainly starting to, to tick up and so I think that will have hopefully have some impact on uh, on, on how the order book evolves from here. Well, clearly the, some of the options that has been exercised has been at uh, very low prices at least compared to what our brokers quote. Uh, how, how many of these options do you think are left for you know at the big uh, big Korean yards? Anyone want to guess? Very few. Very few I think yeah. Of those options, of those sort of, you know, late 2017, early 2018 options, I think very few. And what do you think the reason is that we've seen a big rally in new building prices for tankers? You know, a lot, uh, big movements on the on the dry bulk side and also on the container side. LNG has been pretty much flat. It's it's up. You know, if you started the year, you were maybe 180, 182 and a half. Now you're more 187 and a half. So of course, uh, but it's a lag. It's a lagging indicator because, as Alistair said, you know, there's these option arrangements. So usually, if people order a vessel, they get the option, and it has a certain validity. Let's say six months. So the kind of the the, the broker calls are a bit lagging in terms of what is happening on the ground. And uh, so when you see people ordering vessel, the the price they are getting is maybe not uh, what they would get today but what is happening then when they order that vessel they might not get six months validity any longer because the yards are not willing to extend that so I think you know the, there are you know fundamental drivers driving up the, 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 the new buildings prices and I you know, wouldn't be surprised if it goes to 200 million dollars you know. if you look at you know steel plates and everything it's you know, uh, and also the slot availability that that's where the, the, the kind of the new building prices are heading do you think the yards are making money at current prices? Yeah, you know, they have a bit They're strange accounting. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they have a bit different uh, type of accounting than we do, so it's very hard to know whether they're making money or not. At least they are securing employment. I think, I think there's huge pressure on, on the yards from the government and the banks uh, not to enter into loss-making contracts. 
And in terms of, um, I wanted to talk uh, the, uh, a bit about the different types of new builds. The markets still seem a bit divided on whether to opt for XDFs or Megis. Uh, then you've gone for both. Uh, I, I don't think it's divided. It's you know you're picking you know different technology have different features. So of course the problem you know the the good thing and the issue with the Meg is the the fact that you're having a 300 bar pressure in the engine room. Of course you get a very clean combustion. You don't have the methane slip and you have a very good fuel economy. Uh, but uh, but you know uh, XDF you know uh, have this low cappuccino pressure you know 12 to 15 bar. You know, which is more easy to handle in an engine room. You have less OPEX, so it's a, you know, what do you want? Do you want to have the lowest consumption and less methane slip, or do you want to have an easier operation and less maintenance cost? So I think it makes sense to have both systems. So that's why we opted, you know, initially we opted only for Megis, and then we have added some Megis, uh, now some XDFs, and I think, you know, it makes sense to have both technologies uh, uh, because, uh, you know, there are, pros and cons for both systems and it also is very good to to not having just one engine manufacturing because then the yard prices are definitely going to pick up Which one? <laughs> uh, uh, so you you've uh, spent quite a bit of capital on installing the relic plants on your vessels could you on some of your vessels could you talk about the rationale behind that decision and yeah um uh, so we have the relic facilities on on three vessels now and Obviously, the, the objective is to reduce the boil-off rate um, on the vessels. We, we put those facilities on uh, three vessels which had slightly higher boil-off rates of 0.15%, um, which brings the boil-off ratio down to levels which are uh, much more competitive. Um, with, uh, with newer ships, obviously, it doesn't reduce the fuel consumption in, in the engines. These are all on TFDEs. But it does give the charterer significantly greater trading flexibility in terms of the speeds at which they can, they can sell the ships. Uh, and it also uh, can result in them uh, being able to sell more cargo um, at, the end of the, at the end of the voyage. So we think there are meaningful economic benefits for, for charterers, um, especially on the ships which have slightly higher boil-off ratios. Is this something anyone else in the panel has considered? Of course, we have partial relic system on four of the vessels in our, uh, in our uh, fleet. All the Megis, they have a partial relic system. This brings down the boil-off to 0.075, which is about half of a lot of the tri-fuels and even less than half than uh, you know, the old steam vessels. So at 0.075, you basically have a cut-off speed of around 17 knots, which is you know, a, a nice speed to have on, uh, on this vessel. So it's really not a compromise. You could, of course, put on full relic and get the boil-off down to, you know, let's say, 004. Uh, but you wouldn't run the vessel on that kind of speed anyway. So it's more, you know, the, the feature of having that is in case you do a long-term charter and, you know, you have idle time, you can avoid having to, to burn all the, the excess boil-off in the, the, in the GCU. Uh, and then also in relation to storage, it would be an advantage. And sometimes if you are let's say 17 knots is not the right speed, you are hitting a discharge port and you are, uh, have some extra time, then you can put on the partial relic and go down to, let's say, 40 knots. But, but, uh, but uh, you know, 17 knots on a partial relic, it, it's, it's, you know, it's fairly ideal. So a full relic system, I think you only get the value out with if you're doing longer term contracts because you won't really get the value out of it on, on a spot voyage. Thank you. And you know, there's been a lot of talk about the, the economics between the Megis, the XTFs, and also and, the, and then the the TFTEs. Now I was speaking to an owner who is not in the panel today, um, 
who actually believed that the TFDs would be outperforming the Megis and XDFs in a good market. And, and you and you did a very good fixture earlier this year, which was you know at least higher than at the time what a lot of the, the modern vessels had been fixed at. Do you think it, that's possible that you that these type of vessels will be uh, performing better and that the Megis and XDFs will be picked up first for longer term charters? Well, obviously, we've seen that the the larger, particularly uh, vessels, which predominantly are uh, Megis, uh, have been fixed off uh, early in a, in a rising market, which which uh, probably, to a certain extent, uh, gave uh, gave the rest of us uh, some time to regroup and rethink and and uh, you know, basically hold back. Uh, it doesn't. Um, I, I, obviously, from a, a purely financial point of view, yes, uh, big megis are going to be better better than uh, smaller trifills, as uh, as they are much better than the, the even smaller uh, steamships. But uh, in actual fact, we we are actually now. Uh, trading in a in a spot market, uh, a lot of ships, and and of course uh, then it's not just uh, a matter of uh, of your theoretical uh, financial or economic benefit, but it's it's also about uh, being in the right place at the right time and having a ship available when when the clients need a, a ship. So uh, you know, there's uh, I don't think it's uh, yeah. In general, you ask me, uh, would you rather have a 173,000 cubic meter Megi? Probably. Uh, we still have, I guess, uh, the highest rate done on a, on a on a on a ship this year. So, yeah. I think the other the other thing to bear in mind is that the um, the megas and the XDFs. I think by by number of ships are somewhere around 15% of the fleet. By capacity, I think it's nearer 20% of the of the global fleet round numbers, as that's a relatively small proportion of the of the total fleet today. And if all of the global fleet is is required because of um, uh, demand. Um, and that will you know, tend to leading to what we're seeing today, which is as minimal observable differentials between a, a TFDE and a, uh, and a Maggie XDF. Thank you. And before we dig into to FSRUs, um, I'm guessing the audience has heard plenty of the IMO 2020 today. Um, and that's the good thing with LNG. You don't have to talk about this damn squabbles all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Opportunity rather than threat. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was actually actually my question. What kind of opportunities does this provide to the, to the LNG industry? I think, I think if, if you took all of the existing shipping fleet and converted them to LNG, it would be about between 55 and 60% of the current market for LNG. So it's potentially massive. Obviously, that's not going to happen uh, from, you know, initially. Uh, but uh, I think for new builds, uh, I think for, for existing vessels, scrubbers will probably be the preferred option. But for new builds, cruise ships, container ships and so forth, we're already starting to see a lot of them are using LNG for propulsion. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that. So IMO is going to be very helpful. Um, we're going to see more uh, small scale uh, ventures to support that. Uh, break bulk LNG from FSIUs for LNG bunkering for, for shipping. Uh, that infrastructure needs to develop, and I think we'll see that. Um, but no, this is a, a material uh, contributor to demand for LNG and, and certainly helps deal with any situation that you know, may be the case if Japan's taken on too much LNG and, and has, you know, puts 3% of the global LNG market back into, into the market. Well, uh, shipping could easily absorb that and some. So uh, IMO is fantastic for LNG. <laughs> I think actually, to, just to put some numbers on it, if you if you build a, if you order a VLCC today, you're paying uh, what three million dollars for a, for a scrubber. You could uh, you could do a dual fuel LNG vessel instead for about fourteen. 
So either you do a scrubber, which is going to last you for three years, five years. I think Doug said uh, that was uh, his estimation, and I, I, I believe that. Uh, or you can build an LNG carrier, put $11 million on instead, or an additional $11 million, which is all it be it. You know, it's, what, 10% of the, the, the order. And you have a ship which is uh, ready for, uh, for, well, IMO 2050, almost. <laughs> <laughs> We need to finish off uh, talking a bit about the, the FSRU market and uh, at least we thought it was probably the most interesting shipping segment back in 2016. Um, that wasn't correct, obviously. Um, and, it time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it now seems that you know, the projects are taking a bit longer than expected. Uh, you know, they're, they're not really matching with the new build deliveries and also um, you know, vessels coming off contract. Do you feel like we're FSRU market is turning into the, the F FPSO market? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the the um, FSIU market has uh, seen um, a period of sort of slow uh, demand, and uh, it's a very small market. So, yeah, when you get a couple of years of only three projects a year, and people have been building, assuming there's going to be four or five, then you end up with a couple of extra vessels each year, and uh, you know, of course. Uh, that means that you have slack in the system, which is where we are today, and uh, that slack needs to be uh, wound back in. Um, but um, yeah, the demand uh, for FSOUs is still out there. Um, it um, does, as I mentioned earlier, require relatively large uh, projects, and uh, yeah, it will be helped enormously by smaller sort of incremental demand, which can be tagged on uh, to, to existing uh, assets. And uh, yeah, that's why we are excited about uh, these small-scale uh, IMO 2020-type opportunities. Um, but that's not to say the opportunity has gone away. It is still there. Uh, the um, uh, cost of oil is going up. It could make people more keen to lock in attractive gas prices. Uh, the differential is high, um, you know, and that's on the sort of power gen side. If you're looking on the sort of more transportation side, there's a big margin between where diesel trades in MMBTU terms, and uh, which is about 16 or $17, and where you can buy LNG today. And that is certainly more than enough to capture uh, or to, 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 to be worth going after as, as an opportunity. And uh, Stuart and, and Richard, in terms of how you view the counterparty risk, now obviously there's been some uh, uh, incidents um, on, on the contract side. Do you, how do you consider that now? Are you evaluate the, eva evaluating that differently now than you used to? I mean, I think it's fair to say we've, we've both been burnt in Ghana. Uh, we'll, we'll put that behind us. Um, yeah, by their nature, they've always been projects that have been developed in sort of non-OECD countries predominantly, so that's always a risk um, you've had to take on. Luckily, uh, new build FSAUs can trade uh, just as effectively as a ship, so they're not useless. Uh, and right now, even though there are too many ships, uh, too many FSAUs, um, you can put them straight into the sh shipping market and they'll earn a, a pretty respectable or relatively respectable return. Um, I, I think, as Richard said earlier too, that you need to start thinking about a little bit of vertical, in, vertical integration. Um, so we see FSAUs now more as a strategic asset that can be used to exploit other areas of untapped demand. So as Richard said earlier, and we have a classic case of, of exactly that in Sajip, we have a new world FSAU that's going to start operations uh, next year. Uh, it'll service the, I think, 14th largest uh, gas-fired power station in South America, a, a project that we're developing. 
uh, 1.5 gigawatts, and that will only utilise 35% of the capacity of that FSIU. So that leaves 65% of that capacity to, to utilise elsewhere. So for small-scale bunkering, perhaps, break bulk, uh, taking on barges up rivers to service smaller inland markets that are completely off-grid but could benefit hugely from a switch to gas. Uh, you know, we could get LNG up to them for sort of $13, $14 per MMBTU and they're currently paying the equivalent of $30 per MMBTU. So if you see these FSIUs as a, as a strategic asset, if you can use them to create new markets to uh, support the, the original sponsor to get that project over the line and you're prepared to get more involved in the infrastructure side of, thing, side of things, then there are certainly projects out there to take. Yeah, I think we see it exactly the same way. And you know, the key thing is uh, to get involved with the projects early and uh, don't um, just be uh, a, um, a supplier to a, to a tender. Your biggest supplier to a tender is, is, is all well and good if you've got a really rock solid counterparty and they're running a robust um, process around it. But if it's a project which is maybe more marginal, maybe it's uh, supplying a market which is you know, yet to be fully developed, uh, then you really need to have good visibility on uh, what you're getting into, and um, uh, and and you know whether that means um, partnerships um, or or exactly how you get that visibility will depend. But uh, I think it is key um, to, to these more um, uh, early stage projects and, and, and new gas markets, new LNG markets. Thank you. And just the, the final question. I think it's uh, one that we get asked a lot, uh, a lot by investors. As to Einstein. Uh, in terms of flex, uh, the Fredrickson Group, you know, when they do things, they normally they either go home or they they go big. Um, so I'm curious to hear what is your vision and what is the the group's vision for flex? Like, how how big do you want to get? What's the what's the ultimate size? I'd say you know we're not chasing size just because of size, but you know when we do stuff, we do stuff we believe in. We are simple people. We have a simple strategy. We buy the vessels when the oil prices are high, low, and we charter them out when the the charter rates are high. Uh, and of course, there has been plenty of opportunities to, uh, to build first-class assets now. You know the new fifth-generation vessels, which our fleet consists of entirely. Uh, and there's no secret that you know our principal shareholder have, you know, before summer ordered seven vessels uh, because we are bullish on the market. And you know there are some benefits of scale in terms of having our fleet size, which is ideal for the physical market to have vessels in the different basins at all time, and you can service, let's say, a contract of a freightment contract structure instead of having just TCs. Uh, and then so you are creating your own pool, and then you also have the other side of the business, which is the finance business. And of course, we are now, let's say, 650 million dollar give or take on market cap, and that's not really a big big size when, when our shareholder is owning 52%. So of course, uh, growing the company to a billion dollars is of course uh, the short term goal. And then of course, we're going to do more after that, but we're not going to do stupid things. So of course, we're only going to buy vessels when we think they are cheap. And we're going to charter them out long term when we think the rates are high. And, and that's, you know, the basic philosophy. And that's how we've been building shipping companies in our group for the last, you know, 50 years or so. Thank you. I think that's our uh time up. Thank you very much.